0: Podcastle, episode number 85, for January 5th, 2010, The Narcomancer, by N.K. Jemisin.
1: Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Anne Lecky. I'm very excited to be able to introduce today's story, The Narcomancer, by N.K. Jemisin. You may remember La Alchemista or Cloud Dragon Skies, both stories of hers that ran on our sister podcast, Escape Pod, or Red Riding Hood's Child, which ran right here on PodCastle. If you did hear those stories, you know that N.K. Jemisin's stories are pretty awesome. And you'll be pleased to know that she has a novel coming out in February called The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. It's first in a trilogy set in a world where one family controls the world through the power of enslaved gods. The story follows in A Strange Daughter of the Blood as she's dragged into family and godly politics. The book is available for pre-order, and sample chapters are available to read at nkjemison.com. I know a few people who've been lucky enough to get early copies, and they've all said it's fantastic, so you should go order it. Back to today's story. The Narcomancer was originally published in the now-defunct Helix and is currently available to read online at transcriptase.org. Nora's also had stories appear in Clark's World, Strange Horizons, and Bane's Universe. The Narcomancer is read by Rajan Khanna. Rajan Khanna is a New York-based science fiction and fantasy writer whose work has appeared in Shimmer Magazine, and currently he has a story in Steampunk Tales Number 4 and Shimmer Magazine's Clockwork Jungle Book. You can find him on the web at rajankana.com.
2: The Narcomancer by N.K. Jemisin In the land of Gujara it was said that trouble came by twos. Four bands of color marked the face of the dreaming moon. The great river split into four tributaries. There were four harvests in a year. Four humors coursed the inner rivers of living flesh. By contrast, two of anything in nature meant inevitable conflict. Stallions in a herd, lions in a pride, siblings, the sexes. Gatherer Ket's twin troubles came in the form of two women. The first was a farm cast woman who had been injured by an angry bull ox; half her brains had been dashed out beneath its hoofs. The sharers, who could work miracles with the goddess's healing magic, had given up on her. "We can grow her a new head," said one of the sharer elders to Ket. "But we cannot put the memories of her lifetime back in it." Best to claim her dream blood for others and send her soul where her mind has already gone. But when Ket arrived in the Hall of Blessings to see to the woman, he confronted a scene of utter chaos. Three squalling children struggled in the arms of a sentinel, hampering him as he tried to assist his brethren. by, a young man fought to get past two of the sharers, trying to reach a third temple man, whom clearly he blamed for the woman's condition. "'You didn't even try!' he shouted, the words barely intelligible through his sobs. "'How can my wife live if you won't even try?' He elbowed one of the sharers in the chest and nearly got free, but the other flung himself on the distraught husband's back then, half dragging him to the floor. Still, the man fought with manic fury, murder in his eyes. None of them noticed Ket until Ket stepped in front of the young man and raised his Jungissa stone. Startled, the young man stopped struggling, his attention caught by the stone. It had been carved into the likeness of a dragonfly, its gleaming black wings blurred as Ket tapped the stone hard with his thumbnail. The resulting sharp whine cut across the cacophony filling the hall until even the children stopped weeping to look for the source of the noise. As peace returned, Ket willed the stone's vibration to soften to a low, gentle hum. The man sagged as tension dragged out of his body until he hung limp in the two sharers' arms. You know she is already dead, Ket said to the young man. You know this must be done. The young man's face tightened in anguish. No, she breathes. Her heart beats. He slurred the words as if drunk. No. Denying it makes no difference. The pattern of her soul has been lost. If she were healed, you would have to raise her all over again, like one of your children. To make her your wife then would be an abomination. The man began to weep again quietly this time, but he no longer fought, and when Ket moved around him to approach his wife, he uttered a little moan and looked away. Ket knelt beside the cot where the woman lay, and put his fore and middle fingers on her closed eyelids. She was already adrift in the realms between waking and dream. There was no need to use his Jungissa to put her to sleep. He followed her into the silent dark and examined her soul, searching for any signs of hope. But the woman's soul was indeed like that of an infant, soft and devoid of all but the most simplistic desires and emotions. The merest press of Ket's will was enough to send her toward the land of dreams, where she would doubtless dissolve into the substance of that realm, or perhaps she would eventually be reborn to walk the realm of waking anew and regain the experiences she had lost. Either way, her fate was not for Ket to decide. Having delivered her soul safely, he severed the tether that had bound her to the waking realm and collected the delicate dream blood that spilled forth. The weeping that greeted Ket upon his return to waking was of a different order from before. Turning, Ket saw with satisfaction that the farm cast man stood with his children now, holding them as they watched the woman's flesh breathe its last. They were still distraught, but the violent madness was gone. In its place was the sort of grief that expressed itself through love and would, eventually, bring healing. That was nicely done, said a low voice beside him, and Ket looked up to see the temple superior. Relatedly, he realized the superior had been the target of the distraught husband's wrath. Ket had been so focused on the family that he had not noticed. You gave them peace without dream blood," the superior continued. Truly, gatherer Ket, our goddess favors you. Ket got to his feet, sighing as the languor of the gathering faded slowly within him. The hall has still been profaned, he said. He looked up at the great shining statue of the goddess of dreams who towered over them with hands outstretched in welcome and eyes shut in the eternal dream. Voices have been raised and violence done right here at her feet. Superior? A boy appeared at the superior's shoulder, too young to be an acolyte. One of the temple's adoptees from the house of children, probably working a duty shift as an errand runner. Are, are you hurt at all? I saw that man. The Superior smiled down at him. No child, I'm fine, thank you. Go back to the house before your teacher misses you. Looking relieved, the boy departed. The superior sighed, watching him leave. Some chaos is to be expected at times like this. The heart is rarely peaceful. He gave Ket a faint smile, though of course you would not know that, gatherer. I remember the time before I took my oath. Not the same. Ket shrugged, gazing at the mourning family. I have the peace and order of temple life to comfort me now. It is enough. It is enough. The superior looked at him oddly for the moment, then sighed, "'Well, I'm afraid I must ask you to leave that comfort for a time, Ket. "'Will you come with me to my office? "'I have a matter that requires the attention of a gatherer, "'one with your unique skill at bestowing peace.' "'And thus did Ket's second hardship fall upon him.'" The quartet that stood in the superior's office were upriver folk. Ket could see that in their dingy clothing and utter lack of makeup or jewelry. Not even the poorest city-dweller kept themselves so plain. And no city-dweller went unsandaled on the brick-paved streets, which grew painfully hot at midday. Yet the woman who stood at the group's head had the proud carriage of one used to the respect and obedience of others, finery or no finery. The three men all but cowered behind her as the superior and Ket entered the room. "'Ket, yeah, this is mehepi,' said the superior, gesturing to the woman. She and her companions are from a mining village some ways to the south, in the foothills that border the empty thousand. Mahepi, I bring you Ket, one of the temple's gatherers. Mahapi's eyes widened in a way that would have amused Ket had he been capable of amusement. Clearly she had expected something more of Gujara's famed gatherers, someone taller perhaps, but she recovered quickly and gave him a respectful bow. I greet you in peace, gatherer, she said, though I bring unpeaceful tidings. Ket inclined his head. Tidings of—but he trailed off, surprised, as his eyes caught a slight movement in the afternoon shadows of the room. Some ways apart from Meheppy and the others, a younger woman knelt on a cushion. She was so still—it was her breathing, Ket had noticed—that Ket made no wonder he had overlooked her, though now it seemed absurd that he had. Wealthy men had commissioned sculptures with lips less lush, bones less graceful, sugared currants were not as temptingly black as her skin. Though the other upriver folk were staring at Ket, her eyes remained downcast, her body unmoving beneath the faded indigo drape of her gown. Indigo, the morning color. Mehepi wore it, too. What is this? Ket asked, nodding toward the younger woman. Was there unease in Mahepi's eyes? Defensiveness, certainly. We were told the temple offers its aid only to those who follow the ways of the dream goddess, she said. We have no money to tithe-gatherer and none of us has offered dreams or goods in the past year. All at once, Ket understood. You brought her as payment. No, not payment. But even without the hint of a stammer in Meheppi's voice, the lie was plain in her manner. Explain, then. Ket spoke more sharply than was, perhaps, strictly peaceful. Why does she sit apart from the rest of you? The villagers looked at one another, but before any of them could speak, the young woman said, Because I am cursed, gatherer. The temple superior frowned. Cursed? Is that some upriver superstition? Ket had thought the young woman broken in spirit, to judge by her motionless and fixed gaze at the floor, but now she lifted her eyes and Ket realized that whatever was wrong with her, she was not broken. There was despair in her, strong enough to taste, but something more as well. "'I was a lapis merchant's wife,' she said. "'When he died, I was taken by the village headman as a second wife.' Now the headman is dead, and they blame me. "'She is barren,' said one of the male villagers. Two husbands and no children yet? "'And Mahepi here, she is the first wife.' "'All of my children had been stillborn,' said Mahepi, "'touching her belly as if remembering the feel of them inside her. "'That much was truth, as was her pain. "'Some of Ket's irritation with her eased. "'That was why my husband took another wife. "'Then my last child was born alive. "'The whole village rejoiced.' But the next morning, the child stopped breathing. A few days later, the brigands came. Her face tightened in anger. They killed my husband while she slept beside him, and they had their way with her, but even despite that, there is no child. Mehebi shook her head. For so much death to follow one woman, and life itself to shun her? How can it be anything but a curse? That is why—she darted a look at Ket, then drew herself up. That is why we thought you might find value in her, Gatherer. Death is your business. Death is not a gatherer's business, Kett said. Did the woman realize how greatly she had insulted him and all his brethren? For the first time in a very long while, he felt anger stir in his heart. Peace is our business. Sharers do that by healing the flesh. Gatherers deal with the soul, judging those which are too corrupt or damaged to be salvaged and granting them the goddess's blessing. If you had learned your catechisms better, you would understand that, the superior interjected smoothly. He threw Ket a mild look, doubtless to remind Ket that they could not expect better of ignorant country folk. "'And you would have known there was no need for payment. In a situation like this, when the peace of money is under threat, it is the temple's duty to offer aid.' The men looked abashed. Mehevi's jaw tightened at the scolding. With a sigh, the superior glanced down at some notes he'd taken on a reed-leaf sheet. "'So, Ket, these brigands,' she mentioned, "'are the problem.' For the past three turns of the greater moon, their village and others along the empty thousand have suffered a curious series of attacks. Everyone in the village falls asleep, even the men on guard duty. When they wake, their valuables are gone. Food stores, livestock, the few stones of worth they gather from their mine. Their children have been taken too, no doubt sold to those desert tribes who traffic in slaves. Some of the women and youths have been abused, as you heard, and a few, such as the village headmen and the guards, were slain outright, perhaps to soften the village's defenses for later. No one wakes during these assaults. Ket inhaled, all his anger forgotten. A sleep spell? But only the temple uses narcomancy. Impossible to say, the superior said. But given the nature of these attacks, it seems clear we must help. Magic is fought best with magic. He looked at Ket as he spoke. Ket nodded, suppressing the urge to sigh. It would have been within his rights to suggest that one of his other gatherer brethren, perhaps Liu the youngest, handle the matter instead. But after all his talk of peace and righteous duty, that would have been hypocritical. And, in spite of himself, his gaze drifted back to the younger woman. She had lowered her eyes once more, her hands folded in her lap. There was nothing peaceful in her stillness. We will need a soul healer, Ket said softly. There is more to this than abuse of magic. The superior sighed. A sister, then. I'll write the servants to their matriarch. The sisters were an offshoot branch of the faith, coexisting with the servants of Hananja in an uneasy parallel. Ket knew the superior had never liked them. Ket gave him a rueful smile, everything for her peace. He had never liked them either. They set out that afternoon, the five villagers, two of the temple's warrior sentinels, Ket and a sister of the goddess. The sister, who arrived unescorted at the river docks just as they were ready to push off, was worse than even Ket had expected, tall and commanding, clad in the pale gold robes and veils that signified high rank in their order. That meant this sister had mastered the most difficult techniques of erotic dreaming, with its attendant power to affect the spirit and the subtler processes of flesh. A formidable creature. But the greatest problem in Ket's eyes was that the sister was male. Did the messenger not explain the situation, Ket asked the sister at the first opportunity. He kept his tone light. They rode in a canopied barge more than large enough to hold their entire party, and the pole crew besides. It was not large enough to accommodate ill feelings between himself and the sister. The sister, who had given his name as Ginnem, stretched out along the bench he had claimed for himself. Gatherers, so tactful. Ket resisted the urge to grind his teeth. You cannot deny that a different sister, a female sister, would have been better suited to deal with this matter. Perhaps, Ginnem replied, with a smile that said he thought no one better suited than himself. But look. He glanced across the aisle at the villagers who had occupied a different corner of the barge. The three men sat together on a bench across from the first wife. Three benches back, the young woman sat alone. That one has suffered at the hands of both men and women, Ginnem said. Do you think my sex makes any difference to her? She was raped by men, Ket said. And she is being destroyed by a woman. That first wife wants her dead, can you not see? Yenem shook his head, jingling tiny bells woven into each of his braids. If not for the need to involve the temple in the brigand matter, no doubt the first wife would have found some quiet way to do her in already. And why do you imagine only a woman could know of rape? Ket started. Forgive me, I did not realize it was a long time ago. Yenem shrugged his broad shoulders when I was a soldier. Another life. Ket's surprise must have shone on his face for a moment later Ginnam laughed. Yes, I was born military caste, he said. I earned high rank before I felt the calling to the sisterhood, and I still keep up some of my old habits. He lifted one flowing sleeve to reveal a knife sheath strapped around his forearm, then flicked it back so quickly that no one but Ket noticed. So you see, there is more than one reason the sisterhood sent me. Ket nodded slowly, still trying and failing to form a clear opinion of Ginnem. Male sisters were rare. He wondered if all of them were this strange. Then we are four fighters and not three. Good. Oh, don't count me, Ginnem said. My soldier days are over. I fight only when necessary now. And I expect I'll have my hands full with other duties. He glanced at the young woman again, sobering. Someone should talk to her. And he turned his coal lined eyes to Ket. Night had fallen humid and thick by the time Ket went to the woman. Her companions were already abed, motionless on pallets the crew had laid on deck. One of the sentinels was asleep, the other stood at the prow with the ship's watchman. The woman still sat on her bench. Ket watched her for a time, wondering if the lapping water and suddenly passing palm trees had lulled her to sleep, but then she lifted a hand to brush away a persistent moth. Throwing a glance at Ginnem, who was snoring faintly on his bench, Ket rose and went to sit across from the woman. Her eyes were lost in some waking dream until he sat down, but they sharpened very quickly. "'What is your name?' he asked. "'Namsud.' Her voice was low and warm, touched with some Southlands accent. "'I am Ket,' he replied. "'Gatherer, Ket.' "'Does my title trouble you?' She shook her head. "'You bring comfort to those who suffer. That takes a kind heart.' Surprised, Ket smiled. "Few, even among the goddess's most devout followers see anything other than the death I bring.' Fewer still have ever called me kind for it. Thank you. She shook her head, looking into the passing water. No one who has known suffering would think ill of you, gatherer. Widowed twice, raped, shunned. He tried to imagine her pain and could not. That inability troubled him all of a sudden. I will find the brigands who hurt you, he said, to cover his discomfort. I will see that their corruption is excised from the world. To his surprise, her eyes went hard as iron, though she kept her voice soft. They did nothing to me that two husbands had not already done, she said. And wife brokers before that, and my father's creditors before that. Will you hunt down all of them? She shook her head. Kill the brigands, but not for me. This was not at all the response that Ket had expected. So confused was he that he blurted the first question that came to his mind. What shall I do for you then? Namsut's smile threw him even further. It was not bitter, that smile, but neither was it gentle. It was a smile of anger, he realized at last. pure, politely restrained, tooth-grinding rage. Give me a child, she said. In the morning, Ket spoke of the woman's request to Ginnem. In the upper of towns, the headman's wife rules if the headman dies, Ket explained as they broke their fast. That is tradition, according to Namsut. But a village head must prove him or herself favored by the gods to rule. Namsut says fertility is one method of proof. Gidem frowned, chewing thoroughly on a date. A group of women on the passing shore were doing laundry at the riverside, singing a rhythmic song while they worked. That explains a great deal, he said at last. Mahepi has proven herself at least able to conceive, but after so many dead children, the village must be wondering if she too is cursed. And since having a priest for a lover might also connote the god's favor, I know now why Mahepi has been eyeing me with such speculation. Ket started feeling his cheeks heat. You think she wants... He took a date to cover his discomfort. From you? Ginnem grinned. And why not? Am I not fine? He made a show of tossing his hair, setting the tiny bells a-tinkle. You know full well what I mean, Ket said, glancing about in embarrassment. Some of the other passengers looked their way at the sound of Ginnem's hair bells, but no one was close enough to overhear. Yes, and it saddens me to see how much it troubles you, Ginem said, abruptly serious. Sex, gatherer Ket. That is the word you cannot bring yourself to say, isn't it? When Ket said nothing, Genem made an annoyed sound. Well, I will not let you avoid it, however much you and your stiff-necked servant brethren disapprove. I am a sister of the goddess. I use Narcomancy, and yes, my body when necessary, to heal those wounded spirits that can be healed. It is no less holy a task than what you do for those who cannot be healed, gatherer, save that my petitioners do not die when I am done. He was right yet bent at the waist, his eyes downcast to signal his contrition. The gesture seemed to mollify Ginnem, who sighed. And no, Mehepi has not approached me, Genem said, though she's hardly had time with three such devoted attendants. Abruptly he caught his breath. Ah, yes, now I understand. I first thought this was a simple matter of a powerful senior wife plotting against a weaker second wife. But more than that, this is a race. Whichever woman produces a healthy child first will rule the village. Ket frowned, glancing over at the young woman again. She had finally allowed herself to sleep, leaning against one of the canopy pillars and drawing her feet up onto the bench. Only in sleep was her face peaceful, Ket noticed. It made her even more beautiful, though he hardly imagined that possible. The contest is uneven, he said. He glanced over at the headwoman, Mehepi, acting headwoman, he realized now, by virtue solely of her seniority. She was still asleep on one of the pallets, comfortable between two of her men. Three lovers to none. Yes, Gnem's lip curled. That curse business was a handy bit of cleverness on Mahepi's part, though no a man will touch the second wife for fear of sharing the curse. It seems wrong, Ket said softly, gazing at Namsut, that she should have to endure yet another man's lust to survive. You grew up in the city, didn't you? When Ket nodded, Gnem said, Yes, I thought so. My birth village was closer to the city, and surely more fortunate than these peoples, but some customs are the same in every backwater. Children are wealth out here, you see. Another miner, another strong back on the farm, another eye to watch for enemies. A woman is honored for the children she produces, and so she should be. Make no mistake, gatherer, this contest is for power. The second wife could leave that village. She could have asked asylum of your temple superior. She returns to the village by choice. Ket frowned, mulling over that interpretation for a moment. It did not feel right. My father was a horse trader, he said. Ginem raised an eyebrow at the apparent non-sequitur. Ket gave him a faint shrug of apology. Not a very good one. He took poor care of his animals, trying to squeeze every drop of profit from their hides. Even after so many years, it shamed Ket to speak of his father, for anyone who listened could guess what his childhood had been like. A man so neglectful of his livelihood was unlikely to be particularly careful of his heirs. He saw this realization dawn on Ginnem's face, but to Ket's relief, Ginem merely nodded for Ket to continue. Once my father sold a horse, a sickly, half-starved creature, to a man so known for his cruelty that no other trader in the city would serve him. But before the man could saddle the horse, it gave a great neigh and leapt into the river. It could have swum back to shore, but that would have meant recapture, so it swam in the opposite direction, deeper into the river, where finally the current carried it away. Inem gave Ket a skeptical look. You think the second wife wants the village to kill her? Ket shook his head. The horse was not dead. When last I saw, it was swimming with the current, its head above the water, facing whatever fate awaited it downriver. Most likely it drowned or was eaten by predators. But what if it survived the journey, and even now runs free over some faraway pasture? Would that not be a reward worth so much risk? Ah, all or nothing, win a better life or die trying. Yenem's eyes narrowed as he gazed contemplatively at Kat. You understand the second wife well, I see. Ket drew back, abruptly unnerved by the way Ginnem was looking at him. "'I respect her.' "'You find her beautiful?' He said it with as much dignity as he could. "'I am not blind.' Ginnem looked Ket up and down in a way that reminded Ket uncomfortably of his father's customers. "'You are fine enough,' Ginnem said, with more than a hint of lasciviousness in his tone. "'Handsome, healthy, intelligent. A tad short, but that's no great matter if she does not mind a small child.' A gatherer belongs wholly to the goddess, Ket said, leaning close so that the disapproval on his voice would not be heard by the others. That is the oath I swore when I chose this path. The celibacy comes second to your primary mission, gatherer, Ginnem said in an equally stern voice. It is the duty of any priest of the goddess of dreams to bring peace. There are two ways we might create peace in this village, once we've dealt with the brigands. One is to let Mehepi goad the village folk into killing or exiling the second wife. The other is to give the second wife a chance to control her own life for the first time. Which do you choose? There are other choices, Ket muttered uneasily. There must be. Yenem shrugged. If she has any talent for dreaming, she could join my order, but I see no sign of the calling in her. You could still suggest it to her. Hm. Yenem's tone was noncommittal. He turned to gaze at Namsut. That horse you spoke of. If you could have helped it on its way, would you have? Even if that earned you the wrath of the horse's owner and your father? Ket flinched back, too startled and flustered to speak. Ghanem's eyes slid back to him. How did the horse break free, Ket? Ket set his jaw. I should rest while I can. The rest of the journey will be long. Dream well, Ghanem said. Ket turned away and lay down, but he felt Ghanem's eyes on him for a long while afterward. When Ket slept, he dreamt of Namsut. The land of dreams was as infinite as the mind of the goddess who contained it. Though every soul traveled there during sleep, it was rare for two to meet. Most often the people encountered in dreams were phantoms, conjurations of the dreamer's own mind, no more real than the palm trees and placid oasis which manifested around Ket's dream form now. But real or not, there sat Namsud on a boulder overlooking the water, her indigo veils wafting in the hot desert wind. I wish I could be you, she said, not turning from the water. Her voice was a whisper, her mouth never moved. So strong, so serene, the kind-hearted killer. Do your victims feel what you feel? You do not desire or require death, Ket said. True. I'm a fool for it, but I want to live. Her image blurred for a moment, superimposed by that of a long-legged girl child with the same despairing, angry eyes. I was nine when a man first took me. My parents were so angry, so ashamed. I made them feel helpless. I should have died then. No, Ket said quietly. Others' sins are no fault of yours. I know that. Abruptly, something large and dark turned a lazy loop under the water. A manifestation of her anger, since Oasis did not have fish. But like her anger, the monster never broke the surface. Ket found this at once fascinating and disturbing. The magic that I use, he said. You know how it works? Dream I core from nonsense Dream she said. Dream seed from wet dreams. Dream bile from nightmares. Dream blood from the last dream before death. before four humors of the soul. He nodded. Dream blood is what gatherers collect. It has the power to erase pain and quiet emotions. He stepped closer then, though he did not touch her. If your heart is pained, I can share dream blood with you now. She shook her head. I do not want my pain erased. It makes me strong. She turned to look up at him. "'Will you give me a child, gatherer?' He sighed, and the sky overhead seemed to dim. "'It is not our way. "'The sister—Dreamseed is his specialty. "'Perhaps—Ginem does not have your kind eyes, "'nor do your sentinel brethren. "'You, gatherer-cat, if I must bear a child, I want yours.' Clouds began to race across the desert sky, some as tormented abstractions, some forming blatantly erotic shapes— Cat closed his eyes against the shiver that moved along his spine. It is not our way, he said again, but there was a waver in his voice that he could not quite conceal. He heard the smile in her voice just as keenly. These are your magic-quieted emotions, gatherer? They seem loud enough. He forced his mind away from thoughts of her, lest they disturb his inner peace any further. What was wrong with him? By sheer will, he stilled the unrest in his heart, and gratifyingly the sky was clear again when he opened his eyes. Forgive me, he murmured. I will not. It comforts me to know that you are still capable of feeling. You should not hide it. People would fear gatherers less if they knew. He looked thoughtful. Why do you hide it? Ket sighed. Even the goddess's magic cannot quiet a gatherer's emotions forever. After many years, the feelings inevitably break free, and they are very powerful then, sometimes dangerous. He shifted, uncomfortable on many levels. "'As you said, we frighten people enough as it is.' "'She nodded, then abruptly rose and turned to him. "'There are no other choices,' she said. "'I have no desire to serve the goddess as a sister. "'There is none of her peace in my heart, and there may never be. "'But I mean to live, gatherer, truly live, "'as more than a man's plaything or a woman's scapegoat. "'I want this for my children as well, so I ask you again. "'Will you help me?' "'She was a phantom.' Ket knew that now, for she could not have known of his conversation with Gnem otherwise. He was talking to himself, or to some aspect of the goddess come to reflect his own folly back at him. Yet he felt compelled to answer. I cannot. The dreamscape transformed, becoming the inside of a room. A gauze-draped low bed, wide enough for two, lay behind Namsut. She glanced at it, then at him. But you won't to. That afternoon they disembarked at a large trading town. There, Ket used temple funds to purchase horses and supplies for the rest of the trip. The village, said Mehebi, was on the far side of the foothills beyond the verdant floodplain that made up the richest part of Gujara. It would take at least another day's travel to get there. They set out as soon as the horses were loaded, making good time along an irrigation road which ran flat through miles of barley, heka, and silver cape fields. As sunset approached, they entered the low, arid foothills, Gujara's last line of defense against the ever-encroaching desert beyond. Here, Ket called a halt. The villagers were nervous, for the hills were the brigands' territory, but with night's chill already setting in and the horses weary, there was little choice. The sentinels split the watch while the rest of them tended their mounts and made an uneasy camp. Ket had only just settled near a large boulder when he saw Gnem crouch behind Namsut's pallet. Gnem's hands were under her blanket, moving over her midsection in some slow rhythmic dance. Namsut's face had turned away from Ket, but he heard her gasp clearly enough and saw Genem's smile. Rage blotted out thought. For several breaths, Ket was paralyzed by it, torn between shock, confusion, and a mad desire to walk across camp and beat Genem bloody. But then Genem frowned and glanced his way, and the anger shattered. Goddess. Shivering with more than the night's chill, Ket lifted his eyes to the great multi-hued face of the dreaming moon. What had that been? Now that the madness had passed, he could taste magic in the air, the delicate salt and metal of dreamseed. Ginnem had been healing the girl, nothing more. But even if Genem had been pleasuring her, what did it matter? Ket was a gatherer. He had pledged himself to a goddess, and goddesses did not share. A few moments later, he heard footsteps and felt someone settle beside him. "'Are you all right, gatherer Ket?' Genem. Ket closed his eyes. The moon's afterimage burned against his eyelids in t- tilted stripes. Red for blood, white for seed, yellow for ichor, black for bile. I don't know, he whispered. Well, Yet M kept his voice light, but Ket heard the serious note underneath it. I know jealousy when I sense it, and shock and horror, too. Dreamseed is more fragile than the other humors. Your rage tore my spell like a rock through spider silk. Horrified, Ket looked from him to Namsud. I'm sorry, I did not mean... Is she... She is on damage, gatherer. I was done by the time you wanted to throttle me. What concerned me more is that you wanted to throttle me at all. He glanced sidelong at Ket. Something is wrong with me, but Ket dared not say what that might be. Had it been happening all along? He thought back and remembered his anger at Mahepi, the layers of unease that Namsut stirred in him. Yes, those had been the warnings. Not yet, he prayed to her, not yet. It is too soon. Gnem nodded and fell silent for a while. Finally, he said very softly, If I could give Nam Sud what she wants, I would. But though those parts of me still function in the simplest sense, I have already lost the ability to father a child. In time, I will only give pleasure through dreams. Ket started. The sisters were a secretive lot, as were Ket's own fellow servants, of course, but he had never known what price they paid for their magic. Then he realized Gnem's confession had been an offering. Trust for trust. It. begins slowly with us, Ket admitted, forcing out the words. It was a gatherer's greatest secret and greatest shame. First surging emotions, then dreaming awake, and finally we. we lose all peace and go mad. There is no cure once the process begins. If it has begun for me. He trailed off. It was too much on top of everything else. He could not bear the thought. He was not ready. Ganem put a hand on his shoulder in silent compassion. When Ket said nothing more, Ganem got to his feet. I will help all I can. This made Ket frown. Ganem chuckled and shook his belled head. I am a healer-gatherer, whatever you might think of my bedroom habits. He paused suddenly, his smile failing. A breath later, Ket felt it too, an intense, sudden desire to sleep. With it came the thin, unmistakable whine of a jungissa stone wafting through the camp like a poison breeze. One of the sentinels cried in alarm. Ket scrambled to his feet, fumbling for his ornaments. Gnem dropped to his knees and began chanting something, his hands held outward as if pushing against some invisible force. The sentinels had gone back to back in the shadow of a boulder, working some kind of complicated dance with their knives to aid their concentration against the spell. Mehepi and one of the men were already asleep. As Ket looked around for the source of the spell, the other two men fell to the ground. Namsut made a sound like pain and stumbled toward Ket and Ginem. Her eyes were heavy and dull, Kat saw, her legs shaking as if she walked under a great weight, but she was awake. She fought the magic with an almost visible determination. He felt fear and longing as he gazed at her, a leviathan rising beneath the formerly placid waters of his soul. So he snatched forth his own Jungissa and struck it with a fingernail. Its deeper, clearer song rang across the hills, cutting across the atonal waver of the Narcomancer's stone. holding his will around the shape of the vibrations, Ket closed his eyes and flung forth the only possible counter to the Narcomancer's sleep spell, one of his own. The sentinels dropped, their knives clattering on the rocky soil. Namsut moaned and collapsed, a dark blur among the moonlit stones. Ginnem caught his breath. Ket, what are you? Then he too sagged. There was a clatter of stones from a nearby hill as the Narcomancer's Jungissa stone faltered. Ket caught a glimpse of several dark forms moving among the stones there, some dragging others who had fallen, and abruptly the Narcomancer's Jungissa began to fade as with distance. They were running away. Ket kept his Jungissa humming until the last of the terrible urge to sleep had passed. Then he sagged onto a saddle and thanked the goddess, over and over again. A Jungissa, Ket said, no doubt. It was morning. The group sat around a fire eating travel food and drinking bitter, strong coffee, For none of them had slept well once Ket had wakened them from the spell. The villagers looked at each other and shook their heads at Ket's statement, uncomprehending. The sentinels looked grim. I suspected as much, Ginnem said with a sigh. Nothing else has that sound. For the villagers, Ket plucked his own jungus' stone from the belt of his loin skirt and held it out for them to see. It sat in his hand, a delicately carved dragonfly in polished blue-black. He tapped it with his thumbnail, and they all winced as it shivered and sent forth its characteristic whine. The Jangisa itself has no power, Ket said to reassure them. He willed the stone silent, it went instantly still. It amplifies magic only for those who have been trained in narcomantic techniques. This Jungissa is the child of a stone which fell from the sky many centuries ago. There are only fifteen other ornaments like it in all the world. Three have cracked or broken over time. One was given to the house of the sisters. One is used by the temple for training and healing purposes, but only I and my three brother-gatherers carry and use the stones on a regular basis. The remainder of the stones are kept in the temple vault under guard. He sighed. And yet somehow these brigands have one. Ginnem frowned. I saw the sister's Queen Bee stone in our house just before I left for this journey. Could someone have stolen a stone from the temple? One of the sentinels drew himself up at that, scowling in affront. No one could get past my brothers and I to do so. You said these stones fall from the sky? asked Namsut. She looked thoughtful. There was sunseed in the sky a few months ago, on the night of the Zikari celebration. I saw many streaks cross the stars. There was a new moon that night. Most faded to nothing, but one came very near, and there was light in the hills where it fell. Another Jungissa? It was almost too astounding and horrible to contemplate. Another of the goddess's gifts, lying unhallowed in a pit somewhere and pawed over by ruffians? Kat shuddered. But even if they found such a thing, the rough stone itself would be useless. It must be carved to produce a sound, and it takes years of training to use that sound. "'What difference does any of that make?' Genem asked, scowling. "'They have one, and they've used it. We must capture them and take it.' Military thinking. Ket almost smiled, but he nodded agreement. "'How did you see the sun seed?' Meheppi demanded suddenly of Namsut. "'Our husband had you with him that night. Or so I believe till now. Did you slip out to meet some other lover?' Namsut smiled another of her polite, angry smiles. I often went outside after a night with him. The fresh air settled my stomach. Mehepi caught her breath in affront, then spat on the ground at Namsut's feet. Nightmare spawned demoness? Why, our husband married a woman so full of hate and death, I will never understand. Ginem threw a stern look at Mehepi. Her behavior is offensive to our goddess headwoman. Mehepi looked sullen for a moment, but then mumbled an apology. No hint of anger showed on Namsut's face as she inclined her head first to Gnem, then to Mehepi. That done, she rose, brushed off her gown, and walked away. But Ket had seen something which made him frown. Nodding to the others to excuse himself, he rose and trotted after her. The Namsut must have heard him. She kept walking, and only when he caught her in the lee of the hill did she turn to face him. He took her hands and turned them over. Across each of the palms was a row of dark, crusted crescents. "'So that was how you fought the spell,' he said. Namsut's face was as blank as a stone. "'I told you, gatherer. Pain makes me strong.' He almost flinched, for that conversation had taken place in dreaming. But within the mind of the goddess everything was possible, and desires often called forth the unexpected. To encourage that desire was dangerous. Yet the compulsion to brush a thumb across her small wounds was irresistible, as was the compulsion to do something about them. Namsut's eyelids fluttered as Ket willed her into a waking dream. In it she looked down to see that her hands were whole. When he released the dream, she blinked, then looked down. Ket rubbed away the lingering smears of dried blood with his thumb. The wounds were gone. A simple healing is within any servant's skill, he said softly, and it is a gatherer's duty to fight pain. Her lips thinned. Yes, I had forgotten. Pain makes me strong, and you will do nothing that actually helps me. I thank you, gatherer, but I must wash before we begin the day's travels. She pulled away before he could think of a reply, and as he watched her leave, he wondered how a gatherer could fight pain in himself. By afternoon the next day, they reached their destination. According to Mehapi, the brigands had attacked the village repeatedly to claim the mined lapis stones, and the result was devastation on a scale that Ket had never seen. It passed an empty standing granary and bare fields. Several of the village's houses were burned-out shells, the eyes and cheeks of the people they saw were nearly as hollow. Ket could not imagine why anyone would vie to rule such a place. Yet here he saw for the first time that not all the village was arrayed against Namsut. Two young girls with warm smiles came out to tend her horse when she dismounted. A toothless old man hugged her tightly and threw an ugly glare at Mahepi's back. That is the way of things in a small community like this one, Gnem murmured, following Ket's gaze. Often it takes only a slight majority, or an especially hateful minority, to make life a nightmare for those in disfavor. Here, Mahepi took over, leading them to the largest house in the village, built of sun-baked brick like the rest, but two stories high. See to our guests, she ordered Namsut, and without a word, Namsut did as she was told. She led Ket, Gnem, and the two sentinels into the house. Mahepi's room, Namsut said as they passed a room which bore a handsome wide bed. It had probably been the headman's before his death. My room. To no one's surprise, her room was the smallest in the house, but to Ket's shock he saw that her bed was low and gauze-draped, the same bed he'd seen in his dream. A true seeing, a dream of the future sent by the goddess. He had never been so blessed or so confused in his life. He distracted himself by concentrating on the matter at hand. Stay nearby, he told the sentinels as they settled into the house's two guest rooms. If the brigands attack again, I'll need to be able to wake you. They nodded, looking sour. Neither had forgiven Ket for putting them to sleep before. And I, asked him, I can create a kind of shield around myself and anyone near me, though I won't be able to hold it if you fling a sleep spell at my back again. I'll try not to, Ket said. If my narcomancy is overwhelmed, your shield may be our only protection. That evening, the village folk threw them a feast, though a paltry one. One of the elders drew out a battered double flute, and with a child clapping a minot for rhythm, they had weak, off-key entertainment. The food was worse. Boiled grain porridge, a few vegetables, and roasted horse meat. Het had made gifts of the horses to Mehepi and her men, and they'd promptly butchered one of them. It was likely the first meat the village had seen in months. Stopping the brigands will not save this place, Ginam muttered under his breath. He was grimly chewing his way through the bland porridge, as were all of them. To refuse the food would have been an insult. They are too poor to survive. The mine here produces lapis, I heard, one of the sentinels said. That's valuable. The veins are all but depleted, said the other. I talked to one of the elders a while this afternoon. They have not mined good stone here in years. Even the nose the brigands take are poor quality. With new tools and more men they might dig deeper, find a new vein, but... He looked around the room and sighed. "'We must ask the temple superior to send aid,' Yenem said. Ket said nothing. The temple had already given the villagers a phenomenal amount of aid by sending a gatherer and two sentinels. He doubted the superior would be willing to send more. More likely the village would have to dissolve, its people relocating to other settlements to survive. Without money or status in those places, they would be little better than slaves.' Almost against his will, Ket looked across the feast table at Namsut, who sat beside Mahepi. She had eaten little, her eyes wandering from face to face around the table, seemingly as troubled by the sorry state of her village as the temple folk. When her eyes fell on Ket, she frowned in wary puzzlement. Flustered, Ket looked away. To find Gnem watching him with a strange, sober look. So not just jealousy. Ket lowered his eyes. No, no doubt it is the start of the madness. A kind of madness, yes. Maybe just as dangerous in its own way, for you. What are you talking about? Love, Kinem said. I'd hoped it was only lust, but clearly you care about her. Ket set his plate down, his appetite gone. Love? He barely knew Namsut. And yet the image of her fighting the sleep spell danced through his mind, over and over, a recurring dream that he had no power to banish. And yet the thought of leaving her to an empty fate filled him with anguish. Genem winced, then sighed. Everything for her peace. What? Nothing. Yenem did not meet Ket's eyes. But if you mean to help her, do it tomorrow or the day after. That will be the best time. The words sent a not entirely unpleasant chill along Ket's spine. You've healed her? She needed no healing. She's as fertile as river soil. I can only assume she hasn't conceived yet because the goddess wanted her child fathered by a man of her choosing. A blessing, not a curse. Het looked down at his hands, which trembled in his lap. How could a blessing cause him such turmoil? He wanted Namsut, that he could no longer deny. It being with her meant violating his oath. He had never questioned the oath in sixteen years of his service as a gatherer. For his faithfulness, he had been rewarded with a life of such peace and fulfillment as most people could only imagine. But now that peace was gone, ground away between the twin inexorabilities of duty and desire." "'What shall I do?' he whispered. But if the sister heard him, he made no reply. And when Ket looked up, a shadow of regret was in Namsut's eyes. Gnem and the sentinels, who had some ability to protect themselves against Narcomancy, took the watch, with Gnem to remain in the house in case of attack. Exhausted from the previous night's battle and the day's travels, Ket went to sleep in the guest room as soon as the feast ended. It came as no great surprise that his hours in the land of dreams were filled with faceless phantoms who taunted him with angry smiles and inviting caresses, and among them the cruelest phantom of all, a current-skinned girl-child with Ket's kind eyes. When he woke, just as the sky began to lighten with dawn, he missed the sound of the Jungissa, so distracted was he by his own misery. The urge to sleep again seemed so natural, dark and early as it was, that he did not fight it, Perhaps if he slept again, his dreams would be more peaceful. Gatherer! Perhaps if he slept again. A foot kicked Ket hard in his side. He cried out and rolled to a crouch, disoriented. Ganem sat nearby, his hands raised in that defensive gesture again, his face ticed with concentration. Only then did Ket notice that the high, discordant whine of the narcomancer's Jungissa, startlingly loud and nearby. The window! Genem gritted through his teeth. The narcomancer was right outside the house. There was a sudden scramble of footsteps outside. The window was too small for egress, so Ket ran through the house, bursting out of the front door just as a fleet shadow ran past. In that same instant, Ket passed beyond range of Gnem's protective magic and stumbled as the urge to sleep came down heavy as stones. Lifting his legs was like running through mud. He groaned in near pain from the effort. He was dreaming awake when he reached for his own Jangissa. But he was a gatherer, and dreams were his domain, so he willed his dream self to strike the ornament against the door sill, and it was his waking hand that obeyed. The pure reverberation of the dragonfly Jungissa cleared the lethargy from his mind, and his own heart supplied the righteous fury to replace it. Shaving that fury into a lance of vibration and power, Ket sent it at the fleeing figure's back with all the imperative he could muster. The figure stumbled, and in that instant Ket caught hold of the Narcomancer's soul. There was no resistance as Ket dragged him into dream. Whatever training the brigands' narcomancer had, it went no further than sleep spells. So they fell, blurring through the land of dreams until their shared minds snagged on a commonality. The temple appeared around them as a skewed, too large version of the Hall of Blessings, with a monstrous statue of the dream goddess looming over all. The narcomancer cried out and fell to his knees at the sight of the statue, and Ket took the measure of his enemy at last. He was surprised to see how young the man was. Twenty at the most, thin and ragged, with hair and a half-matted mix of braids and knots. Even in the dream he stank of months unwashed. But despite the filth, it was the Narcomancer's awe of the statue which revealed the truth. "'You are raised in the temple,' Kett said. The Narcomancer crossed his arms over his breast and bent his head to the statue. "'Yes, yes.' "'You were trained?' "'No, but I saw how the magic was done.' "'And he had taught himself just from that?' "'But the rest of the youth's tale was easy enough to guess.' The temple raised orphans and other promising youngsters in its house of children. At the age of twelve, those children chose whether to pursue one of the paths to service or leave for a life among the laity. Most of the latter did well, for the temple found apprenticeships or other vocations for them, but there were always a few who suffered from mistakes or misfortune and ended badly. Why, Ket asked, you were raised to serve peace. How could you turn your back on the goddess's ways? The brigands, whispered the youth. They stole me from my farm, used me, beat me. I I tried to run away. They caught me, but not before I'd found the holy stone, taken a piece for myself. They said I wasn't worthy to be one of them. I showed them, showed them. I showed them I could make the stone work. I didn't want to hurt anyone, but it had been so long, so long. It felt so good to be strong again. Ket cupped his hands around the young man's face. And look what you have become. Are you proud? No. Where did you find the Jungissa? The dreamscape blurred in response to the youth's desire. Ket allowed this, admiring the magic in spite of himself. The boy was no true narcomancer, not half-trained and half-mad as he was, but what a gatherer he could have been. The dream reformed into an encampment among the hills. The brigands settled in for the night, eighteen or twenty snoring lumps that had caused so much suffering. Through the shared underpinnings of the dream, Ket understood at once where to find them. Then the dream flew over the hills to a rocky basin. On its upper cliff face was an outcropping shaped like a bird of prey's beak. In a blackburn scar beneath this lay a small, pitted lump of stone. Thank you, Ket said. Taking control of the dream, he carried them from the hills to a greener dreamscape. They stood near the delta of a great river, beyond which lay an endless sea. The sky stretched overhead in shades of blue, some lapis, and some as deep as Namsut's morning gown. In the distance, a small town shone like a gemstone amidst a carpet of green. Ket imagined it full of people who would welcome the youth when they met him. Your soul will find peace here, Ket said. The youth stared out over the dreamscape, lifting a hand as if the beauty hurt his eyes. When he looked at Ket, he was weeping. Must I die now? Ket nodded, and after a moment the youth sighed. I never meant to hurt anyone, he said. I just wanted to be free. I understand, Ket said. But your freedom came at the cost of others' suffering. That is corruption, unacceptable under the goddess's law. The Narcomancer bowed his head. I know. I'm sorry. Ket smiled and passed a hand over the youth's head. The grime and reek vanished, his appearance becoming wholesome at last. Then she will welcome your return to the path of peace. Thank you, said the youth. Thank her, Ket replied. He withdrew from the dream then, severing the tether and collecting the dream blood. Back in waking, the boy's body released one last breath and went still. As shouts rang out around the village, Ket knelt beside the body and arranged its limbs for dignity. Gnem and one of the sentinels ran up. Is it done? The sentinel asked. It is, Ket said. He lifted the jungus stone he'd taken from the boy's hand. It was a heavy, irregular lump, its surface jagged and cracked. Amazing the thing had worked at all. And are you well? That was Ganem. Ket looked at the sister and understood then that the question had nothing to do with Ket's physical health. So Ket smiled to let Ganem see the truth. I am very well, sister Ganem. Ganem blinked in surprise, but nodded. More of the villagers arrived. One of them was Namsut, breathless, with a knife in one hand. Ket admired her for a moment, then bowed his head to the goddess's will. Everything for her peace, he said. The sentinels went into the hills with some of the armed village men, after Ket told them where the brigands could be found. He also told the village folk where they could find the parent stone of the Narcomancer Jungissa. A basin marked by a bird's peak. I know the place, said Mahepi with a frown. We'll go destroy the thing. No, Namsut said. Mahepi glared at her, but Namsut met her eyes. We must fetch it back here. That kind of power is always valuable to someone, somewhere. Ket nodded. The temple would indeed pay well for the stone and any pieces of it. This set the villagers a murmur, their voices full of wonder and, for the first time since Kat had met them, hope. He left them to their speculations and returned to the guest room of the headman's house, where he settled himself against a wall and gazed through the window at passing clouds. Presently, as he had known she would, Namsut came to find him. Thank you, she said. You have saved us in more ways than one. He smiled. I am only her servant. She hesitated, and then said, I, "'I should have not asked you for what I did. It seemed a simple matter to me, but I see how it troubles you.' He shook his head. "'No, you were right to ask it. I had forgotten. My duty is to alleviate suffering by any means at my disposal.' His oath would have become meaningless if he had failed to remember that. Yenem had been right to remind him. It took her a moment to absorb his words. She stepped forward, her body tense. "'Then you will do it? You will give me a child?' He gazed at her for a long while, memorizing her face. "'You understand that I cannot stay,' he said. "'I must return to the temple afterward and never see the daughter we make. "'Duh.' She put a hand to her mouth, then controlled herself. "'I understand. "'The village will care for me. "'After all their talk of a curse, they must, or lose face.' Ket nodded and held out a hand to her. Her face wavered for a moment beneath a mix of emotions. Sudden doubt, fear, resignation, and hope." and then she crossed the room, took his hand, and sat down beside him. You must show me how, he said, ducking his eyes. I have never done this thing. Namsut stared at him, then blessed him with the first genuine, untainted smile he had ever seen on her face. He smiled back, and in a waking dream saw a horse running, running over endless green. I have never wanted to do this thing before now, she said, abruptly shy, but I know the way of it. And she stood. Her morning garments slipped to the floor. Ket fixed his eyes on them, trying not to see the movements of her body as she stripped off her headcloth and undergarments. When she knelt, straddling his lap, he trembled as he turned his face away, his breath quickening and heart pounding fast. A gatherer belongs wholly to the goddess. That was the oath. He could hardly think as Namsut's hands moved down the bare skin of his chest, sliding towards the clasp of his loin skirt. Yet he forced his mind to ponder the matter. He had always taken the oath to mean celibacy, but that was foolish, for the goddess had never been interested in mere flesh. He loved Namsut, and yet his duty, his calling, was still first in his heart. Was that not the quintessence of a gatherer's vow? Then Namsut joined their bodies, and he looked up at her in wonder. Holy, he gasped. She moved again, a slow undulation in his lap, and he pressed his back against the wall to keep from crying out. This is holy. Holy. Her breath was light and quick on his skin. Dimly, he understood that she had some pleasure of him as well. No, she whispered, cupping his face between her hands. Her lips touched his, but for a moment he thought he tasted sugared currants before she lived free. But it will get better. It did. They returned to the temple five days later, carrying the of Jungissa as a guarantee of the villagers' good faith. The superior immediately dispatched scribes and tallymen to verify the condition of the parent stone and calculate an appropriate price. The payment they brought for the Narcomancer Jungissa alone was enough to buy a year's food for the whole village. Ginnem bid Ket farewell at the gates of the city, where a party of green and gold-clad women waited to welcome him home. You made the hard choice, Gatherer, he said. You're stronger than I thought. May the goddess grant your child that strength in return. Ket nodded. And you are wiser than I expected, sister. I will tell this to all my brothers, that perhaps they might respect your kind more. Ginnem chuckled. The gods will walk the earth before that happens. Then he sobered, the hint of sadness returning to his eyes. You need not do this, gatherer Ket. This is her will, Ket replied, reaching up to grip Ginnem's shoulder. You see so much so clearly. Can you not see that? Ginnem gave a slow nod, his expression troubled. I saw it when I realized you loved that woman, but... We will meet again in dreams, Ket said softly. Gidem did not reply, his eyes welling with tears before he turned sharply away to rejoin his sisters. Ket watched in satisfaction as they surrounded Gidem, forming a comforting wall. They would take good care of him, Ket knew. It was the sisterhood's gift to heal the soul. So Ket returned to the temple, where he knelt before the superior and made his report. Stinting nothing when it came to the tale of Namsut, Sister Ghanem examined her before we left, he said. She is healthy and should have little trouble delivering the child when the time comes. The first wife did not take the news happily, but the elder council vowed that the first child of their reborn village will be cared for, along with her mother, who so clearly has the god's favor. I see, said the temple superior, looking troubled. But your oath, that was a high price to pay. Ket lifted his head and smiled. My oath is unbroken, superior. I still belong wholly to her. The superior blinked in surprise, then looked hard at Ket for a long moment. "'Yes,' he said at last. "'Forgive me. I see that now, and yet—' "'Please summon one of my brothers,' Ket said. The superior started. "'Ket, it may be weeks or months before the madness—' "'But it will come,' Ket said. "'That is the price of her magic. "'That is what it means to be a true Narcomancer. "'I do not begrudge the price, but I would rather face a fate of my choosing.' The horse was in his mind again, its head lunging like a racer's against a swift river current. Sweet Namsud, he yearned for the day he would see her again in dreams. Fetch gatherer Liu, superior, please. The superior sighed but bowed his head. When young Liu arrived and understood what had to be done, he stared at Ket in shock. But Ket touched his hand and shared with him a moment of the peace that Namsud had given him, and when it was done, Liu wept. Afterward, Ket lay down, ready, and Liu put his fingertips over Ket's closed eyes. Ketanem, Ket said before sleep claimed him for the final time. I heard it in a dream. My daughter's name shall be Ketanem. Then, with a joyful heart, Ket, gatherer and narcomancer, servant of peace and justice, and the goddess of dreams, ran free. The end.
0: Feedback for Podcastle episode number seventy-seven, Chris Dykman's Nine Sundays in a Row. Brought to you by the Fine Editors at Strange Horizons during our free fantasy fiction crossover promotion. It was the story about a dog watching over a woman readying to sell her soul to his master. Ms. Max said, Who's a good story? Who is who? Geely said, Awesome story, and great work by Kane Lynch. Wonderfully expressive reading. I love the dog's initial disdain for the people who show up at the crossroads and watching the relationship between the dog and the girl evolve and change was a great show. And Portrait in the Flesh said, I sold my soul at the crossroads and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. I mean, great story. I'm pretty sure I could listen to it nine Sundays in a row and still enjoy it each time. Well, I agree with you, Portrait in the Flesh, except for that crack about the lousy t-shirt. You must not be wearing the new fire-breathing PodCastle t-shirts like I am, Right now, me, my t-shirt, my probability sword, and my Jones Cola. Uh, I mean hard cider. Mead, maybe? Absinthe? (sighs) Sorry about that. They only let me out of the dungeon so often. Come on, I said, give me a sword and I'll win this war for you. And instead, all they gave me was this stupid microphone. So, now that we've got that out of the way, you can pick up all the Escape Artist merch at poddisc.com. Why don't you swing by our forum? That's forum with no S. Why, yes, I do read the meta chat section in my spare time. What spare time, you ask? And I say good question. Drop on by our forum at forum.escapeartist.net. Until then, keep an eye out for rattlesnakes, keep a firm grip on your soul, and we'll see you all at the crossroads next week.
1: And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site.
0: Edgar Allan Poe said, Sleep, those little slices of death. Oh, how I loathe them.